Welcome to the Insomnia Coach Podcast. My name is Martin Reed. I believe that nobody needs to live with chronic insomnia and that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI techniques, can help you enjoy better sleep for the rest of your life. Dr. Jade Wu is a clinical psychologist and behavioral sleep medicine specialist at Duke University School of Medicine. Her current research focuses on treating sleep disorders in those with chronic illness. In the clinic, she uses treatments that do not involve medication to help people with insomnia, circadian rhythm disorders, and other sleep concerns. In this episode, Jade and I discuss a number of concerns that are really common among people with chronic insomnia. We talk about how much sleep we need, whether we can lose our ability to sleep, whether insomnia is caused by a chemical imbalance in the body, whether chronic insomnia causes any serious health problems, and whether we have any control over the negative impact insomnia can have on our lives. We also talk about why cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI, is such an effective treatment for people with chronic insomnia, even if it's present alongside another health condition. Many people have inaccurate beliefs about sleep, and this is a big contributor to sleep-related worry and anxiety that can perpetuate insomnia. My aim with this episode is to help change the way you think about sleep and insomnia. I hope this will help reduce the intensity of any worry or anxiety that might be making it more difficult for you to improve your sleep and encourage you to pursue CBTI so you can enjoy better sleep for the rest of your life. A full transcript of this podcast and an accompanying video can be found at insomniacoach.com forward slash podcast. Okay, so thank you so much for sparing some time and coming onto the podcast today, Jade. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So let's start right at the beginning. Uh, How did you get interested in the field of sleep and insomnia in particular? So my background is in clinical psychology. And when I was getting my PhD, Um, I actually started out doing research in mood and anxiety disorders. And while I was doing research in that area, it became really clear to me that one common thread through a lot of things I was seeing was sleep problems. Everybody who came in, whether they had generalized anxiety disorder or OCD or depression, everybody has something wrong with their sleep. So I was very intrigued by this. And I ended up doing a little bit more neuropsychology research in uh, in Parkinson's disease. And there too, sleep was a big issue. So it just started to dawn on me more and more that sleep was this common transdiagnostic factor that, you know, if we can improve sleep for people, then I bet we can sort of raise the boat uh, or raise the water for all boats. And so that's how I got interested in sleep. And insomnia specifically, I think I just got really interested in because it's one of the most common sleep problems. And I was uh, working at the VA um, uh, at some point, and a lot of veterans have problems with PTSD and with insomnia. So that was something so common in the clinic that I just, you know, got really interested. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I think you hit upon a really important point there, you know, just this link with anxiety, you know, and just like the, 
the the mental impact that sleep has and i think it's kind of like this two-way street i was actually just talking to a client yesterday um and they they said to me that they're not sure if they have an insomnia problem or an anxiety problem yeah Uh, that's so common Uh uh-huh so it's really kind of this in my opinion it's kind of like this chicken and egg scenario you know i I don't think it's one causes the other all the time and or the other one causes one all the time i think there's Mm -hmm. like it's like this two-way relationship what do you what are your thoughts on that I absolutely agree. I think, you know, it's possible that a stressful event that causes you anxiety kind of kicks off that first bout of insomnia in the first place. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that for some random reason you had a bout of acute insomnia and that caused you anxiety about it. And either way, it doesn't even matter, I think, which one started it. Mm -hmm. Um, But once you sort of gain momentum, I think you're exactly right that the two feed off of each other and then you end up in this vicious cycle where the anxiety keeps the insomnia going and the insomnia keeps the anxiety going. Yeah, and I think that's why we're seeing like these these research articles coming out that are finding, you know, when there's anxiety present with insomnia, which, you know, I'm still waiting to find that person with insomnia that doesn't have any anxiety, um, that they're finding that regardless of which which was the precipitating factor which is the origin of the insomnia if you implement like these cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia these cbti Mm -hmm. techniques you help in terms of sleep and anxiety you know so it's really not i have to prioritize one over the other um Mm -hmm. really like as soon as you're taking steps to improve your sleep you tend to improve anxiety as well Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And I really like that CBT for insomnia um, is so it it can it can help with both aspects, as you said, and it can be a really nice introduction for therapy too for people who maybe haven't had experience with psychotherapy before. So maybe they're reluctant to engage in therapy for their overall anxiety disorder. Mm. But you know, let's try to improve your sleep. And in, in the meantime, the anxiety improves a little bit too, and they see the benefits. And um, then it sort of builds a good, a positive cycle, positive reinforcement cycle. So I really like that about CBTI. Yeah, I, I love that positive reinforcement cycle, because it's something <laughs> I talk with clients about a lot, you know, because they easily recognize the opposite, you know, that vicious cycle of you worry yeah. about sleep, so you get worse sleep, then you worry more, and that leads to worse or, sleep. But one mm-hmm. of the great things that you see with CBTI is kind of just takes a little bit of the edge off the anxiety sleep improves a little bit then you worry less then your sleep improves then you worry less so it does really just turn that vicious cycle on its head into this positive cycle so yeah i love that it gave me a kick that you said that because sometimes i feel like i'm the only one saying stuff like this and so when (laughs) someone else comes out with it 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 just gives me a kick (laughs) for sure yeah so all right as i'm sure you know you know People with insomnia have tried so many things to improve their sleep. Um, Whenever I talk to someone with insomnia, I I ask what they've done to try and improve their sleep, and they give me this whole long laundry list of things they've tried. Um, And as I'm sure you probably recognize, most of the things that they try through no fault of their own are actually quite unlikely to help and can actually increase worry and anxiety, especially when you're told to try something like by say a doctor or you've read something in a book to try. I'm thinking kind of along the lines of sleep hygiene here as an example. So you try these things and then they don't work and it just leads you to worry more. Um, And I think that 
also people with insomnia have a lot of inaccurate beliefs about sleep and a lot of this again is just the messaging that's prevalent in the media um, online you know when you google sleep go on twitter and look up information mm -hmm. about sleep so i thought it would be good to talk with you about some sleep myths common sleep concerns um, and mm -hmm. see if we can address some of those if you're up for it yeah let's go for it all right so let's start with the the big one should we all be aiming for eight hours of sleep? And do we all need eight hours of sleep to feel good the next day? The short answer is no. And a longer answer is some people need eight hours of sleep. Some people need more. Some people need less. And I think it's actually uh, very problematic, this mm -hmm. idea, this myth, that we should all be aiming for eight Yep. It's kind of like saying to everybody in the world that everybody should drink eight hours, uh, eight glasses of water per day. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of us need more, but not everybody, you know. So, it, like an athlete, a pro athlete at the height of their training is going to need more water than, like, a couch potato that's mm -hmm. a five-year-old, you know, sitting on the couch. I don't know. Those are just some. Those are bad examples, but I think it it works similarly with sleep, where our need for sleep differs between individuals, between us, and also it changes over the course of the lifetime. So, you know, it's really hard to say for any given person, you know, you need eight hours or you need seven hours. It really depends on a lot of factors. And, and the only real way to know how many hours you need is to see, well, how many hours can your body sleep if you give it enough opportunity? Um, and can you consistently sleep that amount without getting insomnia? So mm -hmm. that sweet spot is sort of where you feel pretty good and you're, you're getting enough opportunity to sleep, but you're not lying there awake struggling to sleep a lot. Yeah, I think, yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, it's kind of akin to just to use another analogy. I think you had a good one with the water, but another one would mm -hmm. be just like the thought that we all need to wear size eight shoes. You know, right, exactly. it, it's completely ludicrous when you say yeah. that and think that, but it's no different to thinking that we all need to get eight hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, I, I, and I think it is a damaging message, you know, because people can then strive and it's like a sleep effort. And as soon as we put effort into sleep, we put pressure on ourselves to sleep. It just makes mm -hmm. sleep more difficult. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I always tell people sleep is one of the very few things in life that does not reward hard work, mm, you know, like yeah. just working harder and, you know, trying to improve in almost every other aspect of life. It usually works pretty well. So when yep. people start having insomnia, they try to apply the same strategy by trying harder, working harder, and it just backfires. And I also tell people sleep is kind of like a very like a nice but really shy friend that you have you know like she's always going to hang out with you she will always come back but if you are too intense in the relationship and you're stalking her and you're trying to hunt her down she's going to run away from you because who wants that you know it's too much pressure that is a brilliant analogy i'm totally <laughs> going to steal that from you and use that <laughs> sure. one that's great <laughs> yeah i think it, uh, the, Another issue with that message is, you know, when I, I was working with a client recently and she was like implementing these CBTI techniques doing really well. Um, she was getting like consistently between six and a half, seven hours of sleep each night, feeling good during the day. She goes mm -hmm. to her doctor and her doctor says, well, that's not good enough. You need to get eight hours of sleep. And so then she comes back to me, like all this progress, it felt like we're kind of <laughs> taking this big step backwards, you know, because of this messaging yeah. and it's, it's just so damaging. 
it really sucks when another healthcare professional kind of undoes the hard work that we've put into helping someone yeah. um, sort of re reposition or rethink their perspective on sleep. But that, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. You know, just to stay with this uh, sleep duration, um, mm -hmm. when, when I have clients just like enroll in my basic, like free sleep training course, I talk a little bit about sleep duration and I actually dug out this study um, out of Germany. It was, it was the uh, Institute for quality and efficiency in healthcare. And mm -hmm. um, to quote their actual words, they actually wrote the average person sleeps about seven hours a night around the age of 40, about six and a half between the ages of 55 and 60, and a healthy 80-year-old will usually sleep about six hours a night, but then they go on to say, but these are all only averages, even mm. though we're already below that eight-hour mark. Um, mm. And they said everyone needs a different amount of sleep. And here in the yeah. States, even the National Sleep Foundation, when you read like behind the big headlines that they like to come out with, they themselves, you know, found that for um, adults between 26 and 64 years of age, as mm -hmm. little as six hours of sleep may be appropriate. And for right. adults 65 and over, as little as five hours may be appropriate. Absolutely. So when you kind of like dig away, you really see that this eight hour myth is just so prevalent, but mm -hmm. so inaccurate. Absolutely. That's so true. And the um, the recommendations that you quoted there from the National Sleep Foundation, they published this, I think, pretty well-known graphic that shows you the ranges, right, for each mm -hmm. age group. And it, I think it's really important to know that, you know, within each range, for example, for adults between 26 and I believe 65, um, the range is somewhere between like six and nine hours or six and 10 hours or something like that. Mm -hmm. and within that range, it's not like the more you get, the better. Mm -hmm. It's personal and it's very individual so if someone only needs six and a half hours that's all they need trying to get seven is not going to be better it's only just going to mess up their overall pattern yeah exactly it's just something that we can i don't know it's, it's just something not worth striving for you know just trying to compare yourself to others i mean just it just popped into my head you know it's like being upset if you're left-handed really wanting to be right-handed or vice versa right. you know it's just right. you're different you know and and that it's okay <laughs> it's okay not to be getting eight hours of sleep just like it's okay to be left-handed or right-handed you know mm -hmm. so yeah so yeah i wanted to lead with that because i just think that's the that's the biggest thing that I come across and it's a big yeah. issue in terms of the messaging that's out there about sleep. For sure. Mm -hmm. So here's the next question I've got for you. Mm -hmm. um, do we need to catch up on lost sleep after we have a bad night or after we've had a string of bad nights? Yeah, that is such a common question. And I think so the answer is a little bit more complicated here, but I'm going to lead with no, because mm -hmm. I think the the should we try to catch up this question really implies should we go out of our way to try and sleep more than our body feels like right and i don't think that's helpful because let's say last night you slept poorly today if you go to bed really early trying to catch up but before your body is ready before you're sleepy then you're going to lie there and struggle and that's going to compound the problem. And now you feel like you've gotten two bad nights and now you're going to try harder and feel more anxious. And before you know it, you've gotten into this pattern where you know you may end up having prolonged sleep problems. Um, but 
you know, if last night you got a bad night of sleep and tonight you start feeling really sleepy earlier than usual, then go ahead and go to bed. That's your body telling you that you need, um, you're, you're sleepy and you need a little bit more sleep. So I'd say really the answer should be, you know, listen to your body and, and give it opportunity, give yourself opportunity to feel your sleepy cues coming on, but don't go out of your way to try and catch up on sleep if you're not feeling sleepy. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. And, you know, the, the one issue that I would say is, you know, if, if you let's say you're going through a course of CBTI, you're implementing these techniques. And one of them, you know, mm-hmm. is the sleep window, uh, mm-hmm. sleep restriction, bedtime restriction. Um, mm-hmm. and, w- and we try and say, you know, tr- try and just stay awake until the start of your sleep window. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's say that someone has a string of bad nights and they're really sleepy at like, seven o'clock and their sleep window doesn't begin till 10 they then mm-hmm. go to bed at like seven o'clock they're like i can't do this anymore i go to bed well mm-hmm. then they're probably gonna you know wake earlier in the morning then mm-hmm. um and either struggle because they're going to be frustrated that they haven't mm-hmm. slept through until the end of the sleep window um which is an issue in itself um but then you're kind of you're if, if you're getting out of bed then and starting your day earlier again you're mm-hmm. kind of off track so when you try and compensate it kind of derails you further down the line yeah. if that makes sense yeah that's a really good point and i think i i should amend my answer by saying it depends on whether someone has chronic insomnia or not mm, right so if they have chronic insomnia and they're working on a sleep efficiency training bedtime restriction program then i would say you know, it's going to feel really awful for a couple of weeks, but stick with it. You know, it's going to, it's like a hard reset button. Um, In which case, even if you feel sleepy at 7 p.m., don't go to bed until your sleep window. Um, But if someone doesn't have sleep uh, or doesn't have chronic insomnia, and this is kind of like, occasionally they'll have a a bad night and it's like, okay, then, then it's not as big of a deal. You can sort of listen to your body and be more flexible with it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on um, like weekend lions? So Mm. um, it's it's something that most people that don't really think about sleep will do just naturally, you know, they'll stay in bed a little bit longer on the weekends. Mm. Um, But it's something that when people have insomnia, we typically recommend that they don't do. Um, So so what are your thoughts on, on that in particular, you know, those weekend lions? If someone does have chronic insomnia, um, then I would, say very strictly, you know, the, the most important recommendation I will give is to wake up at the same time and get out of bed at the same time every day, because that will serve as the anchor in the 24-hour cycle mm-hmm. that will, um, the, and, like, basically, the better you stick with that, the faster your body is going to reset and regain its natural patterns. So, you know, I, it, it, just like with anything else, I think my answer would be it depends on whether someone has insomnia or not. Yeah, exactly. Because if someone's got chronic insomnia, we are implementing these quite rigid, quite structured techniques just because Mm -hmm. they're kind of the fastest and most efficient way of helping you get your sleep back on track and get to that point where you're not really thinking about sleep anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I Um, I do tell people it's not for the rest of their life. Yeah. It's like, I I say, you know, it's going to be boot camp for the next few weeks and Mm -hmm. it may be really, really hard and you're going to feel very tempted to get out of bed or to sleep in or lie in on weekends um but that's okay this is temporary you know the ultimate goal is to get you to a point where you feel confident enough about your sleep and you have a good relationship with your sleep such that the occasional lie-in is not going to really you know mess things up 
Yeah, I think I like to tell people, you know, it's just this case of a bit of short term pain for that long term gain. And just to remind people as well, how long they've been living with insomnia Mm -hmm. up to that point. Um, If they can just, you know, push through for the next few weeks, couple of months, Mm -hmm. it's going to be hard, but probably no harder than just having insomnia for the foreseeable future. So I think the alternative is a little bit more appealing if you when you reframe it that way. Sure. All right, so let's move on to the next question that I've got for you. Uh, can we lose our ability to sleep? <laughs> that's, that's one I get a lot as well. Um, not that I've seen. Um, like I always tell people the part of the brain that controls sleep is right next to the part that controls breathing and heartbeat and the very, very basic biological functions. So sleep is just so... Um, evolutionarily old um, and it's so biologically basic in our brain that a lot of other things would have to happen first before we lose our ability to sleep. Um, Now there are neurodegenerative neurodegenerative disorders that will affect the brain sleep circuits and will mess with sleep somewhat. But even then, for example, people with Parkinson's disease, a couple of decades into the disorder, um, they will have some sleep problems, but even they are able to sleep. So it's if someone comes in with insomnia and says, I think I've lost my ability to sleep, I, I would be very optimistic for them that that most likely has not happened. Yeah, well, yeah, 100%. And I think it's, it is important to just remind people that you never lose your ability to sleep, you know, and it is this mm-hmm. core biological mechanism, just like breathing. Um, And, you know, and sticking with that breathing analogy, one that I like to use a lot is, you know, just like if we're really anxious, you know, it makes sleep more difficult. Like it's like this, almost like this body's survival mechanism. It keeps Mm -hmm. us alert and to protect us from this perceived Mm -hmm. threat, this perceived danger. And in that way, it's like breathing because we can take a deep breath and hold our breath voluntarily but eventually the body's going to take over and make us breathe. Absolutely. And it's just yeah. the same with sleep. No matter how anxious or worried we are, mm-hmm. we can suspend sleep temporarily, but yeah. eventually we'll get to that point where our sleep drive, which never goes away, will just get so high, so strong that we mm-hmm. will sleep. Absolutely. The brain is very much self-adjusting when it comes to sleep. And, and not only that, so I really love your breathing analogy. You know, if we hold our breath for as long as we can, not only will our bodies just uh, involuntarily take over at some point and make ourselves breathe again, we will probably also take a really deep breath to compensate for the breath Mm -hmm. that we had been holding. And just like with sleep, if we've been sleep deprived for an amount of time for whatever reason, the next time we sleep again, the brain is going to generate more deep sleep to make up for the deep sleep that we lost. So the brain is very adaptive and very resilient when it comes to sleep. I think I think you made a great point there in terms of the body compensates because I think mm-hmm. everyone listening would probably have expected mm-hmm. you to say something like so you'll get more sleep but that isn't always the case mm-hmm. sometimes the body will typically just start off by prioritizing that deep sleep 
So if you go through this string of bad nights, your body will put you into deep sleep quicker and you'll spend more time there. But your overall sleep duration itself might not be longer. And I Mm -hmm. think that's important to emphasize because some people might think, well, I just don't get those long periods of catch up sleep. So that's evidence Mm -hmm. that there's something wrong. Um, But that's not necessarily the case because it's like you said, behind the scenes, the body is making all those adjustments. You just might not see it in terms of duration alone. For exactly, exactly. And that's why I think sometimes the idea of sleep debt can be misleading because it makes it sound like for every hour of sleep that you didn't get, you need an hour to make up for it. Yeah. And I think I've heard the analogy of, you know, for every brick and you put in your backpack, you have to take a whole brick out to lessen that weight. But that And that sounds, I think, really scary for people. How, how much pressure is that? Like if I think about all my... Uh, university years, that's that's a lot of sleep debt that I would never, ever catch up on. Yeah. But I'm functioning fine because my body is resilient and, you know, our bodies can, can adjust um, to what we need in terms yeah. of sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, staying on this idea of sleepability, I think mm-hmm. one reason why some people can become concerned that maybe they've, they're losing the ability to sleep is they're no longer recognizing sleepiness cues. I think that's quite common in people with chronic insomnia. Um, You know, so you think back on on the good old days, you know, when you didn't really think of sleep and you remember how sleepy you'd get and you'd go to bed and you'd fall asleep really quickly, whereas now you're struggling and you just, you seem to have lost that feeling of sleepiness. So how do we explain that when we've just said that it's impossible to lose the ability to sleep? Yeah, that is such a good question. And I think there's two aspects um, to the answer. One is that there is a difference between sleepiness and tiredness. And I bet you've heard this a lot where people conflate the two, right? They'll say, but I'm so tired by 10 p.m. And but as soon as I go to bed, you know, I'm lying there for hours and I'm not falling asleep. Why is it that I'm so tired but can't fall asleep? And, and then I spent some time teasing apart the difference between tiredness and sleepiness, where sleepiness is really more of a behavior almost than a, than a feeling. You can feel it coming on, um, perhaps, but it's, it's something um, observable, whereas tired is a little bit more subjective, and you may be feeling emotionally tired, you may be feeling exhausted or, or cognitively drained, um, but you may not be sleepy yet just mm-hmm. because you're feeling so I think that's one important distinction to make. Um, and I think that often reassures people because then they're not thinking, wait a minute, how come I'm, feel, I'm feeling tired but not, not falling asleep? Um, and another thing I would say is that insomnia really is a 24-hour hyperarousal disorder. So it, it almost... It, it almost is not a sleep disorder per se because as we've been talking about, you know, when you have insomnia, you haven't lost your ability to sleep. So it's not really a sleep disorder. It's more mm-hmm. of a hyperarousal disorder that makes you tired and antsy during the day and irritable during the day and makes you more likely to perceive wake and to feel um, wakeful during the night. So I think a big part of what CBTI does is to decrease that anxiety and that arousal over the 24-hour period. And that helps with feeling better during the day and that uh, helps with sleeping better at night. 
Yeah, you know, it is so fascinating that you said maybe insomnia just isn't a sleep disorder because it definitely shares. I mean, it's not the symptoms aren't an inability to sleep. You know, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with like the physiological side of sleep. But yeah, right. we class it as a sleep disorder. And I got this earlier podcast episode with Nick Wignall and he just comes out with it. He says insomnia is an anxiety disorder as far as he's concerned, you know. Yeah. Um, and the, the more I think about it and the more I talk about it, um, I'm definitely more inclined to, to think of it that way. Yeah, for sure. I think we think of it as a sleep disorder because we are blaming the daytime symptoms on the nighttime sleep problems. Mm -hmm. Really, both the daytime and the nighttime symptoms are caused by a third factor, which is hyperarousal. So often I think my patients will think, um, you know, I feel tired and cranky and um, pain during the day because I slept so badly at night. And then that feeds into the pressure to sleep better and feeds into the sleep effort as well. And so that kind of keeps the vicious cycle going. But in fact, you know, we can, I, I, we don't really have to blame those daytime symptoms on sleep problems. We're actually, we should be blaming all of the symptoms day and night on hyperarousal. So I don't know if that helps people when they to hear that, but I've had at least a few patients where when we just straight up said, you know, you don't have a sleep disorder, you have an anxiety disorder. And then I think that was a breakthrough moment for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, some people would probably take comfort in it. Some people might not be happy to be labeled, you know, as someone that's got sure. an anxiety problem at the same time. So it is mm-hmm. difficult. You tre- we're treading like a thin line. We're never going to satisfy everyone. But um, what mm-hmm. I tend to find is, you know, people just people have this confusion. They're like, I'm not like I touched upon earlier. Like, I'm not sure if it's an anxiety problem or an insomnia problem. You know, whereas really, it's kind of all all the same thing. You know, yeah. we don't really need to make that distinction. And right. I think that CBTI techniques are so helpful because they really address both. You know, they mm-hmm. they help re- they help reduce that hyper arousal, that high level of worry or anxiety, and just alertness. And at the same mm-hmm. time, they give you these behavioral techniques. You know, to to make the biological sleep mechanisms work for you to build that sleep drive so that you are going to bed when you're sleepy, not tired Um, to break that kind of any conditioned arousal, you know, because a lot of people will say to me, I feel really sleepy, you know, at seven o'clock, but Mm -hmm. then just before my sleep window starts or when it's time to get into bed, I'm wide awake, you know, Mm -hmm. which is a common symptom of this conditioned arousal because you've experienced all this wakefulness and worry and sleeplessness night after night, you've kind of just learned that that's what to expect at night. And CBTI also helps address that too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what's the next question I have for you that I hear sometimes? Okay. Is insomnia caused by a chemical imbalance in the body? Uh, That is also a no. Um, so it kind of dovetails onto what we've been talking about, how insomnia is not a physiological problem mm-hmm. with sleep. Um, but I, I do find that that's a common misconception. And in fact, I've heard many different theories from my patients about why they have insomnia. I've heard stuff about the pituitary gland, um, about GABA, about serotonin. And the truth is that none of those things are the culprit. And if it were just one neurochemical or one circuit or one brain region, 
then it would be a much simpler fix or, or it would be a, a pharmaceutical fix that would solve the problem. Whereas we know that sleep, sleeping medications actually don't solve the root of the problem. And that's why you have to take them and take them and take them and take them um, instead of taking them for a short amount of time to reset your brain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if it really was a chemical imbalance, then we would expect medications to work better. But in fact, it's the behavioral changes and cognitive changes that really solve the problem, which tells me that it's not a chemical imbalance in the brain. That, that's a really interesting point, you know, because my answer would, as you, I'm sure you'd be, you'd expect is that insomnia is not caused by a chemical imbalance in the body. But I love the way that you said, you know, we have evidence that it's not because if it was, then we'd have this, we'd have medications for it and your problem would be solved. Whereas we know right. that there's not one medication out there that exists as a long-term solution for chronic insomnia. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, um, you kind of touched upon this earlier, but let's uh, focus on it specifically. Uh, do we need less sleep as we get older? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, even as you alluded to before, the National Sleep Foundation recommends a um, shorter duration sleep range for adults over 65, as low as sometimes five hours. And we also know from some recent meta-analyses and longitudinal studies that for middle-aged and older adults, having, um, I believe the window is about five to seven hours of sleep was actually associated with the least risk of dementia and mortality 10 years down the line. Whereas more than seven hours or more than eight hours or shorter than five hours are both associated with higher risk. Mm -hmm. So again, it's not the more the better. It's that there is a sort of a sweet spot, but that range is pretty wide, right? But seven, yeah. five to seven hours, that's a two hour range. And within that range, or maybe sometimes a little bit outside of that range, um, it really depends on the individual person. Yeah. And I think the reason that I wanted to ask you that question is because I think it's important to bear in mind that sleep does change as we get older. Mm -hmm. And if we've had chronic insomnia for a very long time, let's mm -hmm. say you're now in your 60s and you've had insomnia for decades, mm -hmm. um, you, you might have in your mind is your goal to sleep like you did when you were 20 years old or 30 yeah. years old, you know? Right. And so you, you're kind of giving yourself that goal that you're never going to attain. And that can kind of just perpetuate the problem and make it harder right. for your sleep to improve. And the longer, the longer you go on, the harder your goalpost is to reach because that's the older you get probably the farther you you are away from the way you slept at right yes yeah. so you're just moving further and further away and then that can lead to more worry right so that yeah. i think it is important to just recognize that um we typically do get less sleep uh, as we get older and we also tend to get like more of that lighter sleep you know so uh, um we tend to find that we wake a little bit more often as we get older um and again that's just like waking in itself is normal that's something to also emphasize you know because a lot of people worry about waking but uh, especially as we get older it's even more common to just wake a little bit more frequently during the night yeah. uh, as yeah. sleep becomes lighter yeah and have uh, a smaller proportion of deep sleep too um, and that's okay because we get the most deep sleep when we are babies and kids and teenagers and the reason is that during deep sleep um, that's when we're releasing human growth hormones 
and sex hormones, which we need a lot of when we're going through puberty or when we're still growing our brain. But when we're 80 years old, we don't really need to grow <laughs> anymore. And we don't really need those sex hormones either. So it's okay to not be getting as much deep sleep. Yeah, great point. Um, so you kind of touched upon this in just now, but um, I think it's something important to talk about. So I'm going to ask you this one next. Does chronic insomnia cause any serious health problems? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, the short answer is no. Um, the thing, the problem is that I think we'll find a lot of headlines out there that associate insomnia yeah. with chronic health problems. And that's not surprising because there are lots of things that cause chronic health problems that also cause insomnia. Mm -hmm. So, for example, smoking. We know that smoking causes long-term health problems. We also know that smoking makes uh, one more likely to have insomnia and sleep problems. So then if you look at that person, but without the context of the smoking, it looks like it's the insomnia that's maybe causing the you know, long-term cardiovascular or, you know, other, other brain health, whereas really it's this third factor smoking that's doing the action. So I think it's really important to make the distinction between correlation and causation, where correlation just means two things co-occur at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, whereas causation means one actually leads to the other. And from the latest research that we know, I think a 2019 uh, meta-analysis with over uh, that included over 13 million participants, we found that um, in this giant meta-analysis that insomnia does not cause shorter mortality or um, does not cause mortality and does not increase risk for serious health problems. Yeah, I think. It this is like something that well, I'm sure you experience here too, that I just come across all the time is people have this real intense concern that their mm -hmm. insomnia is going to cause this big health issue in their life. Mm -hmm. um, and that just is such a driver of the worry and anxiety they have about sleep and about their insomnia. And it's really hard to, to kind of pick away at this because you can kind of feel like you're making progress talking to someone and explaining the difference between association causation, the fact that a lot of these studies don't even use people with chronic insomnia as well. They use yeah, people and they, they just deliberately sleep deprived people, um, which right, I think right. we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but, and so that you kind of feel like you're making progress and then the next day, you know, they'll just send me links to these 10 new news articles that they just read that has about heart disease, um, obesity, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. And, you know, I know before I even click on them that none of them are going to say that chronic insomnia causes X. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just having to just, you know, it just feels like everything is working against us. All these media articles, yeah. everything in the press is, yeah. they really just kind of take, the talking points and just emphasize them and yeah. it's just so damaging it's so true and that's something i constantly struggle with um because when it comes to sleep there's not one headline that will really adequately capture uh anything of importance it's it's so hard to just you know, squeeze all of that information into one headline. Because the truth is, it's really hard for consumers to really understand what's going on with sleep, because mm -hmm. something like sleep apnea 
does cause cardiovascular problems, does cause neurological problems. But insomnia is completely different from sleep apnea. But then often the, um, you know, the media articles will say sleep problems cause cardiovascular right. problems. And it's like, well, what type of sleep problem? There are so many different ones. And it's, it's very hard to um, get nuanced with those articles. And I think it, you're absolutely right. It drives up the anxiety level for people with insomnia quite a bit. Um, but one thing I found helpful is falling on back on this idea of your body will tell you if you're not getting enough sleep. So if you have chronic insomnia, that almost guarantees that you're not chronically sleep deprived. Because if you were chronically sleep deprived, you will be sleepy. And if you were sleepy, you wouldn't have insomnia. So, you know, if someone is sleeping like 11 or 12 hours, I will be a lot more concerned about that right. than someone sleeping seven hours, for example. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So another thing that we see in these studies, which I kind of just touched upon, was the fact that a lot of them don't even look specifically at people with chronic insomnia. A lot of them mm-hmm. will just um, take otherwise people that sleep fine. Um, and then either just completely sleep deprive them for a day and then find that they're grumpy the next day, big surprise, and then just say that it causes like all these anxiety issues. Um, Or they'll just, or they'll just like take someone and like just limit the amount of sleep they're able to get. So they want to get more, but they're like, no, we're going to wake you up after four hours and make you do some kind of test or Mm -hmm. do a blood test, whatever. So why is that important? What's the difference between sleep deprivation and Mm -hmm. chronic insomnia? Yeah, I think the easiest way to understand the difference between the two is that sleep deprivation is when some external factor is preventing you from sleeping when your body wants to sleep. Whereas chronic insomnia or insomnia is when you have ample opportunity to sleep, but your body doesn't feel like it. So Mm. you're not sleeping at the time that you wish you were sleeping, maybe, but you're not being prevented by any outside force. So often when my patients come in and they're they're really um, upset and they're thinking, you know, sleep deprivation is a form of torture. You know, it's like prohibited by like uh, the, you know, wartime, like humanity laws or whatever. I'm literally getting tortured right now by having insomnia. But I'm like, oh, is someone keeping you up? Is it like every time you're falling asleep, someone is is like turning on the lights and playing music really loud? They're like, no, I'm just lying there trying really hard to sleep and I can't. And therein lies the difference is that, you know, is it your own body that doesn't want to sleep or is it something else keeping you awake? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think the one thing, I think the latest... uh, new fad that's doing the rounds is all this talk about um you know drowsy driving which is yeah. a legitimate concern um sure. for people who are sleep deprived but not necessarily something for people with chronic insomnia to be too concerned about yeah. what are your thoughts on that yeah well i would much rather get into a car uh with someone who has insomnia than yep. someone who sleep deprived 100% I would even be more willing to get into a car with someone with insomnia than someone who's a a healthy sleeper (laughs) because the person with insomnia has 24-hour hyper arousal remember yeah they're more likely to be even more alert and actually have more um, adrenaline and more vigilance during the day than just the average person Um, so I am not at all concerned about my patients with insomnia getting on the road my patients with sleep apnea that's a different issue insomnia not worried 
Yeah, exactly. You know, if someone, if if it's if you're working with someone with chronic insomnia or talking to someone with chronic insomnia, um, and they're telling you that they're kind of randomly falling asleep during the day or they're falling asleep without any warning, then that's not really in, that's not insomnia. That's, that's not a insomnia. sign of something else. You know, like sleep apnea, perhaps. Sure. Um, yeah. But people with chronic insomnia, the primary complaint, you know, is just that fatigue, that feeling mm-hmm. of just being worn out, that mm-hmm. feeling of exhaustion. But yeah. that's not the same thing as excessive sleepiness. Um, exactly. And it's the excessive sleepiness that we're concerned with that hits all the headlines when we're talking about drowsy driving and, and, the, and the dangers associated with yeah. that. Yeah, and I think the distinction is really important because sometimes my patients with insomnia will cancel plans and not go out and have fun and not do activities because they're afraid that they'll drive drowsy. Mm -hmm. But that just adds to the problem because now they're even more anxious and upset about their sleep and it's keeping them away from having fun and their mood is even crankier and they're not getting the exercise that they otherwise would. So it's, you know, it can be a downhill from there if we don't make that distinction clear. Yeah. And you led me perfectly into the next question, which was, do we actually have any control over the negative impact of insomnia of a bad night of sleep or a string of bad nights of sleep? Are we just destined to have a bad day and just live a miserable life? Well, I would, I would throw that back on the person and ask them, have you ever had a good day after a night of insomnia and also have you had a bad day after a good night of sleep yes Mm -hmm. and i bet the answer is yes to both of those Mm -hmm. and so you know i don't i think it's actually the exact wrong thing to do to limit our life because of insomnia because the more that we um we let insomnia affect our daytime functioning and we let it get in between our social activities and relationships and the things that are fulfilling to us, the more we're putting pressure on sleep. It's almost like we're pausing everything else and waiting for sleep to get better before we live life. And that again is sleep effort and that's only going to push sleep further away. So yeah, I think we totally have control over, you know, the, not totally, but we have a lot of control, maybe more than we think, over the negative consequences of insomnia. Like if we feel tired, if we feel fatigued, maybe going out and having some fun would be the best antidote to that rather than staying home, trying to nap, trying to sleep. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I always encourage people to do is just try to really just stick to your normal daytime routine, you know, just like be an actor or an actress, just kind of pretend that you don't have insomnia during the daytime, you know, try and do everything you can to just stick to your normal routine and do, do things normally. And there's no doubt it can definitely be more difficult to do that. And the temptation to cancel your plans or stay at home and conserve energy can just be overwhelming. But the problem then is, you know, you're guaranteeing a bad outcome. Um, and when you do these things like conserving energy, maybe be tempted to nap, you know, you start implementing these behaviors that actually perpetuate the issue, you know, make it hard, actually harder for your sleep to recover rather. So it's actually having the opposite outcome than what you're actually hoping for. Exactly. Completely agree with that. Um, and another analogy, you know, I like to use is, you know, every time we do something because of insomnia, it's like the cookie monster, you know, like if you imagine insomnia is the cookie monster, so you, you cancel plans with friends, you, you basically give in the cookie monster a cookie and what happens yeah. then he demands more. So then exactly. you do something else. He demands more. But if you just 
kind of ignore the nagging, ignore that urge to modify your life. Eventually, he'll kind of move on and ask someone else for cookies, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to steal that one. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right, so um, I think we did a good job of um, busting a lot of like sleep myths and sleep beliefs. Um, uh-huh. So moving on from that, you know, as, as a practicing sleep psychologist, you use cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia techniques, these CBTI mm-hmm. techniques I talk a lot about on this podcast to help your clients mm-hmm. with insomnia. Um, why is it that you think CBTI is so effective for people with chronic insomnia? Um, yeah, I think because it has um, several prongs that kind of work at the same time to address the main issues that perpetuate insomnia. Yeah. So it's got the behavioral component that is like a hard behavioral reset button that really just jacks up that sleep drive. And I think it's really good to lead with that because sometimes I would say often, actually, patients come in feeling a little skeptical, like I've tried a lot of stuff and it hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. And you're telling me that maybe I have a lot of anxiety about it. Maybe I don't think I have anxiety about it. So I really like to lead with some behavioral change just to um, just to give people a sense of accomplishment and and hope right off the bat. Like, yes, the needle can be moved. Um, and at the same time, I think CBTI is very um, education focused. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you do this too, where you provide a lot of education about how sleep works, how insomnia works. And I think knowledge is power, right? Yeah. I really love to make sure that the patients are, are understanding and on board with the rationale for what we're doing, because I think that's more than half the battle is understanding what, why we do what we do. And, you know, jumping, building on that too, um, on the knowledge about sleep, the cognitive aspect of the therapy, which is to um, help people to see their insomnia from a different perspective, to build um, a different relationship between them and their sleep. I think it's also really, really helpful. And often, you know, it, sometimes the cognitive therapy doesn't work right away, but sometimes there's like one breakthrough moment that really changes things for folks. Um, so yeah, I think between the cognitive and the behavioral and just a sense of hope and a sense of, yes, this is a brief therapy that actually, you know, allows you to see some changes on the order of days and weeks rather than on the order of months, um, gives people a, a sense of, yes, this is something I can do something about. Yeah, I think it's, um, it is important to make it clear that it does often take time, you know, um, not an inordinate amount of time, but it takes weeks, maybe a couple of months. You know, some people that I talk to, uh, they tell me they didn't get that breakthrough moment until like six weeks, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, and people like that, I just admire because if that person had given up after five weeks, they'd be back to where they started, but they persevered and they carried on going. And, you know, I think the breakthrough moment was relatively minor in the grand scheme of things. It was, I think it was, um, they got like six hours of, unbroken sleep you know and that 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 to them was their breakthrough moment for other people the breakthrough moment is just feeling that sleepiness before bed and that's like the transformational moment for them Um, and so it it really is just about finding that kind of positive trigger moment that breakthrough um, and just working towards it and once I, I think once you've got that breakthrough moment and you kind of recognize that all this effort is paying off 
that kind of gives you the confidence to push on and keep moving forward and get make further gains in your sleep for sure yeah and hey six weeks compared to other types of therapies is not bad at all you know and i kind of like to tell people it's kind of like going to physical therapy you know if you have a sprained wrist you're going to you you won't expect an overnight change, but you expect that over the course of a few weeks you'll at least feel some difference and feel a sense of mastery. And I think that's exactly how it works with CBTI. Yeah, and you know, to stick with the six weeks, if you've had insomnia for six years, let's say, then six <laughs> weeks isn't isn't a bad payoff in terms of right. starting to to get better mm-hmm. and improve your sleep. Absolutely. So I, I think it's important, you know, really to highlight these success stories when it comes to insomnia, because it's just so easy to feel like somehow your insomnia is unique. You know, you're the only one with this certain type of insomnia. You've tried everything. You're beyond hope. So do, do, do you have any like good, a good success story or two that you can share with us? You know, maybe there was a client who was really struggling with these CBTI yeah. techniques, but they made that breakthrough and, and now they're doing much better. Yeah, sure. Well, two really come to mind. One uh, was a young woman who came in like just so distraught about her sleep. She was in tears, you know, almost all of the first session. And she was just, um, she felt like she had lost her sense of self. It was more than just a sleep problem for her. Mm -hmm. It, It felt like she had completely lost control over her life. And insomnia had begun to overshadow everything else in her life and she was one that you know was canceling plans and not going out with friends and not engaging in the things that she liked and like not applying to schools and jobs that she was interested in because she didn't think she could perform because of her insomnia and so it was a very um it was it was a case that really stuck with me because she came in so distraught and when I told her that usually I see people between four and six and maybe eight times to cure their insomnia Mm -hmm. she said no offense but I think you're crazy there's no (laughs) way you're going to turn me around in in, you know six weeks um and I just kind of asked her to to like go on this journey with me we'll see you know if it doesn't work it doesn't work you know um, and then after a few weeks, we sort of really hit this breakthrough point where we just said, you know, this is not a sleep disorder. Your brain is totally capable of sleeping. And, you know, this is, a, this is how would you live if you didn't have insomnia? If I had a magic wand that mm. like this could just wave away your insomnia, what would you go out and do? And she said, I would go on a trip with my friends. I would go to the gym. I would apply to this job. I was like, go for it. Do yeah. all of those things. And then a couple of weeks later, it really turned around for her. And she went on her trip. She had fun. And for a couple of nights in a row, she didn't even think about insomnia. She didn't even think about having to plan her day around sleep. And yeah. that's when there was a, um, she got this glimmer of hope and things started to get better. So I, I, that, that was a really good um, case that really sticks with me. And by the end, we, I ended up seeing her five times. And at the end, she said, I really thought you were crazy when you said mm. four to six times, but here we are. Like, I don't need therapy anymore. Yeah. Um, so that was lovely. And, and another type of case I think of when I think of success stories is when people come in with insomnia plus something else. Mm. So insomnia plus chronic pain, insomnia plus, um, you know, a history of breast cancer or Parkinson's disease. And, 
um, these patients, it's so sad that they have so little hope when they come in because they think, how is it possible that my sleep could get better when I have cancer or when I have neurological disorder? Um, don't I have to, you know, cure my Parkinson's before I can sleep better? And of course, that's not possible. So am I doomed to this poor sleep for the rest of my life? And you know, they may not return to sleeping the way that they did before their disease or return to how they slept when they were 25. But, you know, I've had a lot of really successful cases where people end up having a healthy relationship with their sleep. They're satisfied with their sleep and their sleep is not um, impairing their life or keeping them from enjoying their life anymore. So I think that's one important thing for people to know is that, you know, you don't have to have perfect health in every other aspect of your life in order to um, get rid of your insomnia. We can work on that no matter what else you have going on. They're, they're great. Um, I think people are going to take a lot of comfort in hearing those stories, especially that one. You know, I think a lot of people are going to relate to, especially the first example. Uh, well, I think with both, but the first one really stands out for me because uh, I don't think I've come across one person with insomnia who hasn't modified their life in at least yeah. some way because of okay. the insomnia and recognizing that. And, you know, it's almost like just raising the middle finger to insomnia, you know, and just going <laughs> about it and just doing all the things that you enjoy, you know, like in spite of the insomnia you can just have this kind of just change the whole way that you think about the insomnia just like you said it just just reframes your relationship with sleep yeah. and with, with the insomnia itself and once you recognize that maybe it's not holding you back quite as much as mm -hmm. you originally thought you know because you're giving yourself evidence of that by going about your day doing things you enjoy um i think that's like a real stepping stone towards just long-term improvement mm -hmm. All right, Jay. Well, I've, I've taken up so much of your time. I'm, I really appreciate how generous you've been. Um, I do just have one last question for you, though. So don't think you're getting away just yet. Right. Um, if someone with chronic insomnia is listening and feels uh -huh. as though they've tried everything, they're beyond help and that they can't do anything to improve their sleep, what would you tell them? First, I would say bless your heart for trying so hard. I'm, I feel so, um, I feel for you. It's, yeah. It must be extremely, extremely frustrating. And there is uh, nothing more frustrating than struggling with something that happens every day and something that feels like it should be so easy. And maybe it was once so easy for you before you had this mm -hmm. problem. So um, my heart goes out to you. It really sucks. Um, and I would say, that's almost every patient I've ever had. You know, mm. every person who comes in has tried a lot of other things, and many of them have even tried some version of CBTI before, or what they thought was CBTI. And it turned out that the person that they saw for CBTI was not quite a sleep specialist, or what um, was not really practicing CBTI the way that you know you you and I do it in the evidence-based mm. way. So it may be possible that what you've tried before was not really the first line treatment that, you know, for example, the uh, American College of Physicians rec recommends, which is CBTI yeah. for insomnia. So don't give up quite yet. Um, I have seen hundreds of people who were coming in as sort of a last-ditch last effort, not thinking that their um, sleep was ever going to get better, and then they did. So you're not alone and this is a solvable problem.
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you really made a good point there about so many people, because I get it too. So many people say, oh, I tried CBTI. It didn't work mm -hmm. for me. And then I kind of do a little digging. So tell me what kind of techniques you're implementing. Yeah. And they tell me things like, oh, I was told to like listen to this hypnosis tape an hour before yeah. bed and like not drink yeah. caffeine during the day, you know, more like the sleep hygiene stuff, mm -hmm. um, which is a world away really from CBTI. Um, and it's so that's a placebo condition in our studies. <laughs> so we don't expect it to work. Yeah, exactly. It's the control group, right? We know it's, it's like the no intervention group. We know it doesn't exactly. work for people with chronic insomnia, but when you try it and it doesn't work, especially if it's been recommended, to you uh, that just leads to more worry so yeah I think that was a really important point that if you feel you've tried CBTI it might just be worth looking into it again just to make sure it really actually was CBTI that you were you were implementing mm -hmm. um, and just even if it was you know maybe just ask yourself if you tried it for long enough you know maybe you just tried it for a couple of weeks and another goal I have with these podcast episodes is to try and you know, get motivate people to like look into it and really try it and really commit to it because I think it really is like the magic pill. We spend so much time looking for this magic pill for insomnia and it exists, but it's not in a physical form. It's this right. collection of skills, behaviors, techniques uh, known yeah. as CBTI and they're just so helpful. So it's something I really encourage people to, to look into. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. All right, Jade, thank you so much for taking the time to be on today. I'm sure everyone listening is going to find it really helpful, um, especially busting those sleep myths. Um, sometimes <laughs> I feel like I'm swimming alone in the ocean, like trying to bust them by myself. So it's good to have someone here um, to, to talk, them, talk through them with. Um, and those success stories at the end are, were, were a really great way to end as well. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity for having me on. This was really fun. And, and thanks for the really good work you're doing. We should really, you know, I, I love it when people are getting the good word out there about CBTI. So, yeah, yeah I, I appreciate that. We need more, more people. So if anyone's listening to this and you're maybe like a CBTI provider or you work with people with insomnia, yeah. um, get in touch because... We, there needs to be more of us. We need to do more collaboration Absolutely. and we need to get the message out. I agree. All right. Thank you, Jade. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Insomnia Coach podcast. If you're ready to implement cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia CBTI techniques to improve your sleep, but think you might need some additional support and guidance, I would love to help. There are two ways we can work together. First, you can get my online coaching course. This is the most popular option. My course combines sleep education with unlimited support and guidance and is guaranteed to improve your sleep. I will teach you and help you implement new CBTI techniques over a period of eight weeks. This gives you time to build sleep confidence and notice results without feeling overwhelmed. You can get the course and start right now at insomniacoach.com forward slash online. I also offer a phone coaching package where we start with a one hour call. This can be voice only or video, your choice. And we come up with an initial two week plan that will have you implementing CBTI techniques that will lead to long term improvements in your sleep. 
You get unlimited email-based support and guidance for two weeks after the call, along with a half-hour follow-up call at the end of the two weeks. You can book the phone coaching package at insomniacoach.com forward slash phone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Insomnia Coach podcast. I'm Martin Reed, and as always, I'd like to leave you with this important reminder. You can sleep. <laughs>